This episode is sponsored by Intel. By using the power of our technology, scale of our resources, and expertise and passions of our people, we are helping create a more inclusive and responsible culture, industry, and world. We are helping women grow their careers and change the future of technology. And we are taking steps to increase the number of women in technical roles and senior leadership. Our actions support Intel's purpose to create world-changing technology that improves the life of every person on the planet. Glass Ceiling Institute presents Unravel, where we bring together thought leaders, research excellence, and best practices to realize a diverse and inclusive workplace. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Stacy. We're back. For the third time. <laughs> it's incredible. Who would have thought? But Who here we are. We've been, we're, we've been so busy. I can't even believe how busy we've been going into the end of this year. Tell our listeners what has been going on for the past couple of weeks. It's been crazy. Uh, insane. Well, okay. So our glass ceiling report survey is live. That was a huge undertaking. So again, we talked about this last week, but we have a survey of 4,000 employees of technology organizations. So whether you work for a tech company or you're part of a technology organization like an IT organization, that is live. It's a lot of work because there's so many questions to ask. How do you know what to give up? It's a classic problem. Yeah. Um, but we're very excited to have that launched. And of course, you know, we've always done research at Witty every year. But this year, of course, the focus is around a lot of new topics. Intersectionality is a big piece of it. You know, again, not just about women. This is about people of all gender identities, people of color, people of different abilities, people of different sexual orientation, all roles, junior through to the most senior executives. It's pretty much anybody on that diversity and inclusion journey. So, phew, that's off our plate. That's well phew. underway. That's a massive. <laughs> and we have many, many meetings scheduled over the next two to three months. So, again, the survey is about employees, but we're also doing lots and lots of interviews with policy experts, those who have the ability to, to change policy, whether it's at a federal or state or local government level, or even, even in companies, organizational policy experts. And then we've got DNI officers and technology company executives. They've agreed to be part of this. Um, so there is there's a lot to do. But I call this the trough of despair in research. You've done well, what feels like 60% of the work and practically nothing to show for it. But I love this part of it because um, we get to talk to a lot of different people and we learn a lot in this in this process. So that's been really great. And as part of that, with those 80 interviews that we're doing, in addition to those 4,000 um, web surveys, we still have a few uh, a few slots for anyone who is on the journey of diversity and inclusion in some form or fashion to apply to be part of those narratives. So we welcome you. Please go to www.glassceilinginstitute.com under info, and then there's a contact tab, and you can just contact that and let us know you want to be part of the survey. We'd love to talk to you. That's great. Yeah, we would love to hear from people. We've already got so many interesting people to talk about that will, as we uh, do those interviews and roll that out, you'll get to see more of that. And then 
of course, we're planning for a digital inclusivity summit, which um, December 7th and 8th. So we're right in the thick of that right now. So again, that's about 4,000 uh, interested employees, policymakers, entrepreneurs across the globe. And we're very excited that Guy Kawasaki is our keynote speaker this year. Great. Guy is amazing. I've been lucky enough to see him present a couple of times over the years, and he's just, he, you always leave one of his sessions thinking differently about everything. So he's a great entrepreneur himself and can speak about innovation and new workforce changes. So he's really great. And um, we're going to be inducting our Hall of Famers this year. We, we are. We have Michelle. Um, so this is our 30th Hall of Fame. So it gives you some idea of, um, the length at which Witty will go to call out, highlight, and champion really great women in the technology space. So Kara Swisher is one of our inductees this year. Um, Tay Yu, who is the head of corporate communications at Cisco. Tay is incredible. Lisa Jackson, the head of CSR at Apple. Uh, Lisa Su, who's the CEO of AMD. She has an incredible story. Um, and then we have Olu Maduka, who was the founder of uh, Women in Oil and Energy and Gas in Africa. She's an incredible leader. Arundhati Bhattacharya, who's the CEO of Salesforce in India. Angie Ruan, who was who's just left NASDAQ. She was the SVP for technology at NASDAQ and has just gone to Chime. And then the amazing Karen Kintos, who was the first chief customer officer at Dell Technologies. And um, Karen's also on the board at NECMEC, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I mean, they're just, they're an incredible group. Wow. And um, so many incredible women. And we're going to be doing two half days, right? So the first day, December 7th, we're going to be, we're going to, Guy's going to kick us off. And we're going to have some great uh, panels and fireside chats. We're going to be doing tech sessions around cloud, AI, edge, biotech, fintech, digital health. So we're going to be focused on those emerging technology areas. These are going to be some kind of shorter but really hard-hitting topics. And our women of business panel with VCs, mainly female VCs, the second day. So That'll be a great segue from Guy on day two, right? What else are we going to be doing? Um, well, that's that's it, really. You did a great job summarizing it. We should put you in charge of um, being <laughs> our uh, chief champion of the of the summit. Um, oh, oh we, we're oh, I know what we're gonna do. We're gonna have roll out our first um, snippet of data from the glass ceiling report. Oh, that's exciting with Renee. With exactly with Renee. Oh, and I almost forgot, JC, we're going to have, Unravel is going to be live at the summit. Oh, exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. Uh, so that means that we don't have to record it. We're just going to do it live. And who knows, you might drop in while they're at the summit. And you know what? We should let everybody know that if you want to ask questions on Unravel Live at the summit, that you can submit those questions ahead of time. So that's great. And um, if, as a listener of Unravel, you would like to attend the summit, we would love to have you. Uh, so, Stacy, if the listeners want to go to summit.witty.com, oh yes, uh, they can sign up using the promo code Unravel at the checkout. So yeah, that's that summit.witty.com. 
register for the summit. When you check out, use the promo code UNRAVEL and you will have a you'll be registered for a complimentary pass for both days. That's great. All right. So we are lucky enough to have Renee Redwood back today. She had so much to share last time that we had to have her back. And of course, Renee is the original glass ceiling report director for the Federal Glass Ceiling Commission back in the mid 90s. So let's welcome Renee back. Great to have you back, Renee. We're so happy to have you back. And um, so we just finished talking about our survey that's out in the field that we have going out. Um, obviously, I have a long background in research and statistics. So why don't we talk about lies, Dan, lies and statistics? Yes, let's. Renee, where's the accountability? So you talk about systems and changes in systems and processes. Like, where's the system of accountability? Where does that have to come from? Well, that was part of the challenge. And that was one of the things going back to the question about the role of voiding. Mm-hmm. and its connection with uh, the Glass Ceiling Commission. When we released the report, the, the Civil Rights Act of 91 <clears throat> mandated a four-year statutory commission to put forward the findings and the recommendations. It didn't say put in place an implementation plan. It didn't say create. We did say that there needs to be some mechanisms of monitoring because we know unless there's some monitoring, i.e. the practice of accountability, it's kind of left up to the whim. Well, Whitty said they would take some responsibility as much as they could within their span of control to move these recommendations within the tech industry, right? To make sure that folks knew to be able to communicate. And so part of the challenge, and oftentimes we see this with many of these commissions and bodies that are established, is that they don't then enable by having some sort of protocol in place by which monitoring the recommendations and the implementation of such. Now, technically, some of this can fall within the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, at least for any of the, and that's in the federal lane, right? For any businesses, any companies doing business with the federal government or receiving funds from the taxpayers. And that's another way in which we look at this. If you take taxpayers' money, you should not be discriminating against taxpayers. Glass ceilings are mechanisms of discrimination, okay? They are barriers. They're denial of access. They're denial of opportunity. Right. So, I mean, technically, there's a mechanism in place. Right. Now, does that mechanism against systemic barrier? Is that mechanism resourced to actually do its mission? Okay. Federal government, private sector. Oh, we've got a chief diversity officer because we're committed and we made a statement after Mr. Floyd's killing. And so we put in place a person. Okay, A, what did I say? A person. Did we mm-hmm. not just say that institutions don't change from an individual unless it's the head of the institution and it's mandated and cascaded with practice of accountability upward, okay? okay. Putting yeah, people in with the title, right, without the resource to do the job is a shill. And it doesn't speak about the individual, it speaks about the institution. And, and in- what... What are those resources? What do you need to be able to get the job done? A, what is budget, it? A budget in terms of talent. It's not a one-person job, right? Yeah. Uh, they need an actual budget to actually implement, lay out a clear organizational plan to be able to implement it. Um, part of that talent that has to be budgeted is leadership, whether up, cross, however you're structured. If you got a board, of directors, they've got to start to model the behavior itself. 
right? That's an important piece. A CEO, president, whatever the head of that institution is, the person who's responsible for the so-called diversity, culture, um, people, because part of the challenge when we just put it under people in HR, it's bigger than a people process. Who's dealing mm -hmm. with supplier diversity? Yep. Right? So again, where this position, again, where this position is, who is this person budgeted to report to? Right? That has overview over an organization, because culture is everybody's responsibility in every department. It isn't just a people process. It's how we work as people. But it's more than the HR. That's why the HR is a limited lane. It's fundamental because how the people are treated at a human resource. There's a reason it's a resource. We got fancy and called it capital, but then we failed to invest in it. So I'm not sure why anybody will call it human capital if they're not making appropriate investment. That's a scam also. <laughs> I'm not going to call out a scam. I mean, this is how we have to practice accountability. We got to ask these questions. So when you said, what questions do we ask? We need to think, what are we trying to do? Mm-hmm. How do we plan to measure it? Right? It's not just the numerics at the end, but it becomes what's that qualitative? What's the aspect? What's the narrative we're seeking to tell? What's the story that we're using to move this needle, move the journey? I mean, for me, it's it's money. This is what I see as major barriers right now. It's having enough money, hiring people with expertise, mm -hmm. right? Not just anybody, but mm -hmm. somebody with expertise and the ability to make decisions with authority, right? I think that's what yep. we see where the big gaps are right now. No, I agree with that, absolutely. Because you can have the people if they have no decision capacity, right? And part of the decision is control of budget. Budgets are statements of priorities and values. Mm -hmm. How we budget our time, our talent, and our funds. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you... I mean, to your point, Renee, of people being part of those institutions, people mm -hmm. being part of the institutional change, mm -hmm. having to start re really at the top of the organization. Mm -hmm. One of the frustrations that 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 I have is trying to make people care. I mean, you really can't make people care. Do they do it because it's the right thing to do, do or do they do it because they care or do they do it because they need to just check a box? I mean, I don't know if it's all of those or some of those are, that's what I find frustrating is that, is that, I mean, it goes to the whole system of the way our government was formed. I don't know if we want to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole, but, you know, we're dealing with at the federal government level, even still mm -hmm. systems that were put in place 400 years ago. And that's a lot of the same types of people running the company, running the government and organizations. Mm -hmm. If you look at the cover of the glass ceiling report, you'll see, uh, number one, we did it landscape as opposed to portrait. Uh, number two, you see dollar bills, right? Because it's basically a, a large dollar bill, right? And what we have in there are things like columns. Those are the barriers. Those are structural barriers. Those columns have been on these buildings for how long? Okay, so it's going to take time to break them down, right? Mm -hmm. Or replace them, right? You know, and so I keep saying there's gaps because the columns aren't all together. There's gaps and there's more space. Mm. There's more gaps. And how do we begin to fill the space and we would lift that ceiling? You know, wow. leave the fossils there. They become remnants, but they're no longer supporting the overall structure. Hmm. Wow. Right. It's a great visual. 
So if you look at it, I mean, there was some, you know, some, again, by design, not by default. There was an intentionality, uh, the recognition. We didn't want it to sit on the shelf, but there was nothing that was mandated. Witty said we can do what, what we can do within our lane. I think it'd be interesting to go back to all those corporations that at the time we recognized because of the uh, at least one process, one protocol, one system in which they were making effort. You know, it'd be great to go back to all of them and say, tell A, number one, where are you on this particular system? But B, have you gone beyond that? That's a great idea. Right? Mm -hmm. B, 25 years later. 25 years. 25 later, years. What mm -hmm. practice have you made? Mm -hmm. We held you up as a best practice. Right? And we knew it was a good list. Why? Because the, those who say, oh, there's no glass ceiling, there's no discrimination, those are the same people who talk about their critical race theory is not true. Mm -hmm. um, those same people, the, you know, the earth is flat and there is no gravity. Step off the bridge, tell me you don't have to believe it, it's just real. Right? Um, there were people who went and said that that was the list of uh, companies that were uh, prefer having preferential treatment. Oh, is that what we used to call it? Preferential treatment. That was wow. Yeah. And so my response was, well, why don't we look at those roles and see who was preferred? Because it's nobody that looks like me. So maybe that's an accurate term. Hmm. Wrongly applied because of the critical race theory. Hmm. Exactly. That alone. Hmm. Yeah. Um, how are we feeling? Do you think that? So okay, we've gone 25 years. Um, not a lot has changed. Right. Some things have changed. Some not a lot. Is, not enough has changed. Yep. Again, look what um, we're away at. Right. We're so away at. how long then, Renee? Is it another generation? So we've really gone through two worker generations in 25 years. Right. We kind of finished up that first generation. The second generation has almost made its way through. Mm -hmm. How many more generations of workers before we can really start to think about equity in the workplace? And what are you thinking about all these executive orders that we're seeing coming out of the the Biden administration? Does it does it give you hope? I mean, we're seeing a lot of activity there. I oh, see. I always have hope. I just can't tell you the time. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Because changes happen. Change is slow, sadly. But the change that we're seeking is foundational. Mm -hmm. It's foundational. You know, how yeah. long did it take for us to build the uh, was it the Hoover Dam? Mm hmm. I don't know. Right. How so, long did okay. that take? Years and years and years and years and, <laughs> and years and years and years and the whole the whole that's the wall. We call it a ceiling. It's not it's still it's still it's that kind of thickness that yeah. when you break it, it's gonna come flooding out. Right? And so what we've been doing is getting cracks, some fissures here and there. Right? We're gonna get to, you know, as Malcolm Gladwell says, a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. there, got, there will be enough institutional fissures that it gets broken, right? Now, some of what we're seeing happening um, is around, you know, hashtag Me Too, mm -hmm. starting mm -hmm. to break down some of these barriers, sexual harassment, glass ceiling, discrimination, uh, 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 bias in decision making, right? All of those things are stuff we're now talking about them, right? That stuff now is still much more present. You know, the killing of Mr. Floyd, systemic challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Now people mm -hmm. no longer look, well, how can we keep blaming the one officer, but it keeps going over and over and over because it's mm -hmm. an institution, it's a structure. Mm -hmm. Look what it took to get the officer that killed Mr. Floyd to court. Look what it mm -hmm. took. Mm -hmm. okay, we're still, and up, I think. 
right? We're looking at institution after institution. And so mm. what can people do within their span of control? What can you do within your organization mm-hmm. to make it better, to make it consistent with its values? You know, that's what we call organizational trust. Our organizations prepared to align their values, align their practices with the values they espouse. People need to be willing to call out organizations. You said that we have a, 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 a DEI plan. How come I don't know what it is? How good can it be if it hasn't been communicated? How good mm-hmm. is it? What's my yeah. job as part of it? Mm-hmm. I'm part of this organization. Culture is everybody's responsibility at all levels of the institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so how long is it going to take? It's starting to, if the stuff is breaking. That's part of why we're seeing the backlash. Hmm. Okay, why does it break? Because how long did it actually take us to be, uh, have true impact in elections? All of a sudden now, because the structure is being changed, we're going to put limitations on who can participate in the system. Mm-hmm. Right? Because all of a sudden, right, look, as we got more women in Congress, right, we started seeing a greater focus not on the so-called traditional defense, the big planes, the tank, and the bomb. We recognize defenses. We can't even keep our kids safe. How the what are we going to do someplace else? Defenses now come into COVID, microorganisms. Defenses come into cyber. Mm-hmm. Right, so do I still need a big bomb to do this? A big plane? The priorities are starting to shift. Why are we spending more on the defense on buying these big old things to blow up a whole country when we didn't even need anything really big to shut down Facebook? What, three days ago? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay, well, how big was that? Yep. Um, and let me just say, most of the stuff that gets broken right now are the boys breaking it because women ain't in those roles yet. Maybe if we were in the roles, the stuff wouldn't be so broken. But that's, you know, that's what we're looking to change. Right on. Well, is there accountability for that? So, um, well, hopefully we're starting to see more. I mean, again, that's why we see so much resilience to the changing demography of leadership. Well, right? Because the changing demography of leadership also has a role in the changing demography of corporate America. So I talk about this a lot, right? So um, now that we do have more women involved at senior leadership levels, and we do have underrepresented minorities in senior leadership levels, mm-hmm. do they have a responsibility to make sure there's follow through there as well? Well, they need to think how they got there. It wasn't just because, let me just say, there was a whole bunch of brilliance in the world way before they got to their position. It was what were the systems that were no longer denying that brilliance to be noticed. And I don't want to put undue burden on women and people of color uh, that move into leadership because there's already all these expectations, but they're there and they need to, you know, as I always say, you've now demonstrated the credibility to lead. Now, do you have the courage to lead? Those are two different things. So we're getting there, but we got to be able to have some courage. Are we willing to recognize what we can do within our span of control to continue to create access for others? Do we recognize that we got there because of what someone else did before us? Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Unless it was your mama, daddy, family business, and you got there because you had the right last name or the right genetic makeup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What that happened, too. Do you think... <laughs> Do you think we need more regulation in the space? I mean, this is an area where there really there's no regulation. There's many other industries that are regulated, particularly here in the U.S. So the banking industry is regulated. We had the telcos regulated for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
tech has become so big. The cybersecurity issues are now so big. Is it time for regulation? And Michelle, here's where I say, let's change our language. Okay. Right? Um, it's the notion that I say, when we practice accountability, people think of that as negative. I think of it as how do we help each other be successful? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's number one. Regulations, what's another word for regulations? They're safeguards. Yes. It was a regulation that people had to put a seatbelt on. That's a regulation, but we don't think about it like that. And because the terms that we use defined our a, a, a desire for receptivity, then I think we have to start rethinking the language that we use, mm. right? And so, yes, we might, regulations are actually safeguards, right? OSHA, Occupational Safety Hazard Administration, right? They got tons of rules by which things are safe. You get in an elevator, you better hope somebody inspected that thing. <laughs> Right? That's a technically a regulation, but what is this a safeguard? Mm-hmm. You know, are we safeguarding access to equity? Are we safeguarding equity? Right? Are we safeguard are we seeking to safeguard the relevancy and viability of our corporations or our institutions because innovation doesn't reside in one demographic cohort? We can't call it artificial intelligence, it's just a perpetuation of white male bias because they're the only ones who are staying in the industry and it's a way in which they can hold on to the, you know, the white misogynistic male patriarchal dominance. Syndrome. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I do think there has to be some accountability, yes. And I think, again, I'm just going to go right back. If you're taking my money as a taxpayer, I better not be discriminated using my money. So whether mm-hmm. it's A, the federal government, B, the state government, because they took my money too, and I have no problem with paying my fair share because I actually believe we are community, but I also don't want my money being used to discriminate against me. If I'm not going to be given equal access, if you're going to red line in that community, you don't need to have my tax money to create that red line. Mm. Right. Uh, if you're going to give my kids a lesser education, then you don't need give me my tax money. I'll fix my own damn school. That's part of what happened around the charter schools. People mm-hmm. got tired of this disparate, poor education based on where your, your zip code. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So you and I talked the other day about if we're going to have more safeguards, Mm -hmm. that the federal government clearly is going to play a role in that. So here's my question to you. Is the federal government set up to provide those safeguards? Because that's a system. In fact, it's the biggest system we have in the United States. It becomes how do we hold the government accountable for doing the job it's assigned, right? There was an executive order. It was signed and modified by President Bush. Um, and it's the uh, the notion of ethics, and it says public service is a public trust, right? And then it lists these conditions that you should not show preferential treatment to one group or organization or in, institution over another. Okay, right there. Okay, are we doing that? Okay, we got a whole bunch of examples where we are. Okay, how do we hold them accountable for that? What is it that we need to expect for the execution and the use of our dollars? Right. Can the government do something? Yes. They've got to hold themselves accountable first before you can hold others accountable. Right. Can private sector do their own thing up to a certain point? Sometimes the internal group pressure. You know, there's a group that came together. Was it CEOs for racial equity? Right. Whoever that group is, we need to look at that group, too. When you say you're going to be accountable for if you're for racial equity, define what that means in terms of what's the numerics. What's the qualitative and what's the narrative you're telling and what's a timeline by which we should expect some sort of change 
another organization. If you're going to put your name out there, we need to be able to say, what are you doing? So the employees of all those companies need to say, we made this public statement. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to ask people. If you know somebody in the company that's part of that, we need to say, what is your company doing? Is it public? Did the employees know or is it just another list to act like you're doing something? And you're talking about the like, how are we doing part, right? Not just great. There's a report. We've put out a statement. We're going to do this. It's like, well, who's following through on how you're doing on all of that? Just because you have a plan doesn't mean a damn thing. We've had a plan for for equity and justice, liberty and justice for all since how long? Mm, 200 years. Okay. And we got (laughs) close. Yeah, I think we're still on the L. Mm -hmm. Technically, we're not on the liberty if you're actually a woman. Yeah, because right now we have those people in government who want to be all up into our bodies, but they don't have to wear a mask, but they can be up in my uterus. Yeah. So, you know, maybe we need to call out hypocrisy. You know, I was we were talking about systems and accountability and safeguards for those. Um, And again, the U.S. government, they're the they're the number one employer in the United States. Right. It's where there's more people employed for the federal government than anywhere else. Um, and I was talking to somebody recently about how promising I see some of these uh, new bids that are being put out through the federal government mm-hmm. that um, very specifically target women-owned businesses or minority-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. And I had somebody at my house the other day who is younger. I think he's probably in his late 20s. He works in the construction industry. Mm-hmm. And he kind of scoffed at that. He's like, everybody knows that that's a front. I was like, what do you mean? like well you know a lot of these companies they just hire their wife or they get their daughter or they put their niece on as the ceo or as the president and at the end of the day the company is really not diverse the potomac two-step so if a 28 year old who's just getting started in the workforce knows that what is that what is the potomac two-step that's a structural and systemic that's a barrier Right. It's how institution has used the system. Right. Uh, Not as intended. Right. Um, What's an example of that? um, A constant example that we see in contracting and contracts being let to women owned small businesses, WOSB, women owned small businesses. And it's been documented over time that there are companies where the head of the company gets registered as a woman-owned small business, but it is actually uh, a run. Decisions, primary decisions are all made by previous owners or the guys. And that they put a woman up as a woman-owned small business so they can get access to that contracting opportunities. Yet that may not be the true decider within the company, but they've got the qualifications, they've got the uh, certification. That's why now there's been greater due diligence and we need a lot more due diligence. And are these really women-owned small businesses? And right. And, 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 where, and who's benefiting, right? Who's benefiting? Mm-hmm. What does their own workforce look like? Um, Model the behavior. We can't be going on after things like diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And then not having diversity, equity, and inclusion in the contractors that brought on, right? They cannot be perpetuation of the barriers that deny access right? The glass ceiling. So it's kind of the usurping or what we would say the counterfeit of a woman-owned small business, but it's using the name. You know, in the world of of Franklin Covey, when we talk about trust, 
there's either trust and suspicion in their behaviors, right? And you could say it's a counterfeit behavior. It feels like fraud. Like I said, counterfeit. I bet if you were to look up a synonym for counterfeit, you might see that word. Yeah. I mean, but when but when we're talking about millions of dollars being allocated to projects and, and bids, isn't that fraud? Uh, do they have the certification? Right. So the problem is really in the whole system of um, who's accountable, who's mm -hmm. overseeing the overseer, right? right. Is that really right. what it is? Right. And is it actually being, are we, you know, we have these categories for a reason, but are they being done as intended? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there are people given opportunity, particularly around money, people are going to find ways in which to be able to skirt around the issue. You know, people will spin the story. Sure, we have a woman in this title, but where are the decisions made? Who's actually in charge? Do you know, reflect, do they reflect the diversity that's being sought? I mean, there, there are so many important acts being put through right now. There's one really important act being put through around technology and algorithms. My concern is these new problems that we're taking on. So again, I think everybody's got a lot of focus around efficiency in the federal government, which again, if some, a system to me is working really well, you can drive efficiency into that over time, right? There's really it's no reason why, right? That's the problem. It's not working well. Right. So it's how do you... In on structures that were designed last century. Okay, so, we're we're one score plus one year into a new century, and we're still looking at structures and systems that were designed pre World War Two. Okay, to so think about it, and the structures are held in place by remember I said those columns. Those columns represent some of the individuals who've been there forever and have no desire to relinquish power. And therefore, they perpetuate it. And the next way to do it to the new generation is to stick up a Wosby. We're own small business, right? That you can say, yes, 51%, however you want to count, 51%. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think it's a bit of a, a reckoning, right? I think not enough investment has been made into these systems, and it's catching up to us. For example, mm -hmm. you're not going to get somebody at $50 an hour to go fix the problem with algorithms or with data integration issues across all federal agencies, right? You're just, you're not going to find that. Or you, you might find well, someone. Find somebody for $50 mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're going to yield the outcome. And again, we start, go back to what we talked about. What is it that you actually want to achieve? <clears throat> and there has to be clarity as to what that is. There's one thing that's stated. There's another thing that's intended. Right? That's very different. You know, uh, CEOs for racial equity. I'm all for it. But what are you actually doing? Right? How are you going to tell me there's been some impact? Under your watch as CEO, when you say racial equity, tell me what that looks like. Give me a narrative. And then give me the narrative for how you're going to get there. Right. So it's it's clear data, right, that's irrefutable, not something that moves a decimal point every five years. Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's um, the stories, right? Mm -hmm. I think that you can never have data without the empirical evidence as well, right, which is those stories that you did back in the original glass ceiling report. Um, and I think we need to recognize that this is a this is a new investment. Like change is hard, mm -hmm. change management's expensive, and that's where we are, right? If we really want to achieve an outcome of equity. 
Mm-hmm. And let me also just say, it may feel like it's expensive, but it's an investment. Okay. Uh, it's the argument now, um, and again, false argument, the debt ceiling. Really, mm-hmm. what is that? Who's going to come and get us? <laughs> yeah. Who? Who? Mm-hmm. Who? Um, I read an article last week on a healthcare institution that terminated about 150 people because they would not get vaccinated, but they didn't say that le- represented less than 1% of the workforce. Mm-hmm. So the story, again, right? They tell the number, right? So, oh my God, these 140 people, I'm sorry for them, but that was the choice they made because the mm-hmm. safety, everybody else, you have over 99% that get vaccinated. Um, and you don't care about that 99%, we're gonna write the story about the 140. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you ask some of the 99 plus percent why they got vaccinated? Mm-hmm. Half of them don't want to give it to a family member, mm-hmm. much less get it themselves. They can't afford to be sick. They got to work to take care of the family. Right. You know. So I think, again, I do think it's some of these are, they're, they're hard barriers to break, but they're breakable. They're fractionable. They're breakable. They are breakable. Right. We can have a whole other conversation. We can go a whole other hour around the avoidance of cost and reputational risk and what that costs you and fines. And, you know, if you could take all of that money and harness that money and put it into the prevention programs to begin with, mm-hmm. it would be very efficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, right. Again, recognize there's investments. Yeah. Renee, yeah. are you going to come back and talk to us for another hour at some point? Um, if I get lunch. next time we'll bring lunch we'll bring we'll have virtual lunch it'll be great so are we finishing yeah it was a pleasure to spend this hour with you thank you renee you know you know how much we love talking we can talk all the time i know are we finished with this because i thought we were going to do more of the humor part with us going back and forth and then cracking up Well, we'll do that the next time. The next time, because people will probably listen to that a lot more. Like, oh man, they cracked. Did you hear what they said? Oh, we, we are funny. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. We're, we're so serious today. We'll be funnier next time, and we'll have lunch, and we'll um, we'll have a competition of some kind. We'll come up with something. It'll be fun. Sounds like a plan. Okay, so on to more serious things. On to more serious things. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the news. So over the last couple of weeks, really the thing that's been on everybody's mind has been all of the bills that have been pushed through Washington. So yesterday, the historic infrastructure bill was passed. That is the $1.2 trillion investment in things like roads and bridges and waterways. Uh, Broadband is a big focus. Utilities, semiconductors, physical infrastructure. That bill had bipartisan support. Very unusual, unusual to see that in these times. Um, So that is going to have an impact on jobs, obviously, a lot of investment in contracts um, and in technology. I think we're going to see very positive uptick from a lot of those investments in in aging infrastructure uh, with technology being one of them here. But of course, what is being held up, Stacey, is the Build Back Better plan, which is the $1.7 trillion investment in what we're now framing, I guess, as social issues and people. So it seems like we can get bipartisan agreement on things. 
and heavy infrastructure. But when it comes to people, we're still facing these issues, <laughs> being able to justify it and actually get that investment. And of course, what this bill is becoming more and more famous for is what's not in it and what's being dropped. Um, you know, a couple of the things that I thought were major misses has been the drop of free community college. Um, so what's still in that bill is two years of free preschool. Uh, and what the intention would be was to add two free years of community college to the end of schooling. Um, so it would have essentially been 16 years of education paid for, uh, which from my perspective and in other countries where I've either lived or traveled, um, that's something that's pretty typical. Uh, so we're behind. We're behind. Uh, the other huge miss from my point of view is the 12 weeks of paid family leave, which of course a big part of that would have been maternity and paternity leave. Uh, you know, those two things together would have done a tremendous amount to ensure that women stay in the workplace, um, that working is affordable for young families, particularly um, that students get the education that they need for the future workforce. Um, I'm I'm pretty upset about it. I just think they're a massive miss. Just to just underscore, Michelle, the need for data around that we're doing here with the glass ceiling, because the data is what's going to tell the story. The data has got to be brought to the forefront because I can't help but think of the infrastructure jobs of how many women might get left out of those because they haven't been skilled or trained or allowed to be trained because they're such male dominated industries. Well, that's exactly it. You know, we're, we've just passed this huge $1.2 trillion investment in infrastructure. So who's going to be the worker in those industries? You know, a lot of those industries that you talk about, women participate at rates of 20 to 30 percent, even less. So I don't know how you talk about a future without talking about how you're going to have equal representation, um, both of women and people of color. I just don't know how we go forward. And a big component of that economic development to me is having kids in school and um, getting them the training that they're going to need 30 and 40 years from now for that future workforce. You know, I think there's still some really good things in that plan. I think the 7% cap on childcare is important. I know that when I went back to work with my kids, almost all of my income got eaten up on childcare. Yep, um, that's a huge barrier for women and families. Um, so I think that that will be important. There's other tax credits in there for children, which again, I think those are really good, but they're tax credits. It's not like those, that's money in your pocket straight away. Mm. Um, and what's shocking to me was I didn't realize this is about $550 billion in greenhouse gas emission caps and investments in alternative industry. And I'm really surprised that wasn't in the original infrastructure bill. Um, and of course, the person that's holding that up is Joe Manchin of West, West Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. him a little bit. Do you know how old Joe Manchin is, Stacey? I think he is 74 years old. Mm -hmm. Do you know who Joe, Joe makes his money? Because he is a multimillionaire. Mm -mm. I know that I'm against multimillionaires. I want to be one myself. Um, coal, right? He's in the coal industry. So I can see why he's probably not as enamored with the, uh, the Build Back Better plan as some others. And of course, West Virginia... Uh, women make about 76 cents on the dollar compared to men, right? It's even worse for people of color. They make about 66 cents on the dollar. And um, about 60% of workers in West Virginia have no access to any form of paid leave. So, so we know that uh, West Virginia has what I would consider pretty traditional family work structures. Not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture for 
the man who heads up the state, who supposedly represents the constituents of his state, who's a multimillionaire in the coal industry, that's not a pretty picture. It's a lot of disparity. You know, I think that this speaks to a lot of things that we were talking about, that at the moment we've got the supply chain crisis and the industries that are failing are what I would consider male-dominated industries. So, you know, trucking, transportation, um, and logistics and warehousing, manufacturing and factories, you know, port workers. We can't find enough port workers. And yet, you know, there's very low participation rates of women and minorities in those industries. And here we are. We just talked about 300,000 jobs for women that were lost in September. And yet we're dying for workers, these supply chain industries. Just doesn't make sense. Continues to go on and on and on. To me, it's incredible that we still think about some of these policies as quote unquote progressive. I just think that we're 30 years behind when you look at the rest of the world and um, economies that are far from socialist economies have been able to figure this out and being able to figure it out around healthcare. I don't know why we can't get it figured out here. But this is what Renee means. This is what we talked about today. These are the systemic barriers that mean that we're still talking about these things 25 years ago. Five years later. Yeah. Who's responsible for watching? Who's responsible for overseeing all of the policies and legislation that was put in place by the glass ceiling report 25 years ago? What happened? This is why we have to work on systems of accountability. You know, um, this is what Renee means by that. Right. It means who's who's watching the Joe Mansions of the world. This is why we we have to talk about this. And this is why we're creating economic data as part of this research that we're doing. So everybody can understand what the economic consequences are for these systems that continue and go on and on and on. And Stacey, the people that were responsible for the outcome of the glass ceiling report, they're either long gone or dead. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is no accountability. So this is yep. why they need to there need to be other goals around accountability that that are short term. I think in this whole discussion about systemic change that we would be remiss if we did not remind our listeners and ourselves that 61 years ago this week, Ruby Bridges was escorted by four marshals to a white elementary school in New Orleans, Louisiana as part of the desegregation plan that was put in place four years before that by the Supreme Court decision of Brown versus Board of Education. The Southern states were so adverse to implementing these, the legislative changes came down by the Supreme Court that it took four years, first of all, then she had to be escorted to school by four marshals, not just that day, but many days thereafter for her own safety. Thank you, Ruby Bridges. Thank you. It's hard to imagine that we're still having discussions around racism and um, obviously systemic. Systemic um, barriers. Yeah, right, so many later. Yeah. So with that, I think we're gonna wrap it up and we look forward to talking the next time. Thanks, Michelle. See you all next time. Thanks for listening to Unravel. Don't forget to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For more content, follow us on Instagram at Glass Ceiling Institute. Follow us on Twitter at GCI Official. And visit our website, glassceilinginstitute.com. 
See you next time.